Conversations about the future of work are often focused on what will be lost when times change and rarely capture the game-changing possibilities that may come as a result of new and innovative technology and ways of thinking. But what if we put a positive lens on what the future of work can really bring? I'm Hamish Coots. You're listening to Talent Talks, brought to you by Seek. Rhonda Brightonhall, welcome to Talent Talks. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. And welcome to RE 2018. Yes. You delivered your keynote address. Yes, um, I did. And, yeah. And, and all the feedback sort of coming back with a lot of our colleagues was, was absolutely fantastic. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. Firstly for doing that. Thank um, you. You always want to hit the mark, don't you? Absolutely. Being relevant and helpful. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, tell us about your keynote address and, and, and what you spoke about yesterday. Well, a little bit of a gift. So they asked me to talk about the future of work and, um, and I fundamentally think the way we're currently working is just shocking okay. and so the future of work can only be better so right. I'm like we can fix this yeah, and, okay. and the things that we've got wrong at the moment are all very fixable so um, I have the pleasure in my day-to-day job of working both with academics and universities but equally with tech companies and mm. the things that we're able to do for human beings and work is we could literally rethink the things that are causing us so much grief at okay. the moment. So let's start from you mentioned we've got a lot of things horribly wrong at the moment yeah let's let's start at the bottom and we'll work our way back up and we'll finish on a positive note, but what have we got horribly wrong at the moment? Let's let's just give a short list because it's a very long list. Uh, First of all, we're working shocking hours. People are working hours that are debilitating, unhealthy, Mm. um, and aren't good for relationships outside of work as well as at work. I mean, how good are you in a conversation with someone when you've been sitting with them for a meeting that goes for eight hours? It's like, I I just get naughty. I don't know about you, but like eight hours to sit there and go, every 20 minutes we change topics. You go, crazy. Eight hours is about seven hours longer than my attention span. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. And then yeah. you start to make a joke or yeah. be silly or interrupt someone just because you're bored. Yeah. And, I, and I think that way of structuring meetings and relationships and decisions is really quite goofy. That's a little idea. Then we get out to big ideas. Like uh, we talk about diversity of women all the time, 50% of the population. Mm. At work and leadership roles, we're making up 22% of the senior yeah. roles, 30% in boards. If we exaggerate, it's actually about 28. Um, but that's nothing compared to when we look at areas like the Asianification of Australia. So 13.5% Asian population, less than 3% in our senior roles. Mm. Gold Coast Indigenous, 2.9% of our population, zero in zero. our senior okay. roles. So it's, work is not working for many of us. Yeah. You know, and then we talk about things like careers, sabbaticals, how we've designed careers. We've got this crazy view that careers are just like this trajectory that just continually goes up. Mm. Even when your life might not work like that. Like, yeah. I don't know if you have children, but I... I do, yeah. Okay, so I had three children, and, and, and people say, oh, when they're really tiny, you need you know, six months or a year off. My children are 19 and 21. There are frequently days when I need to go and help them do something useful or be there for them. Yeah. So it's a lifetime event, this parenting role. It doesn't just cut out at six months or 12 months old. No, exactly right. So if we talk about the working hours, you know, are counterintuitive yes. um, to people actually being happy yes. and being productive in their lives. Exhausted. What are your observations <laughs> yeah, around the rise of anxiety? What, what are you seeing and observing? I think there's a, a, the anxiety levels that we're looking at in the next generation, the, the, the people who are coming through under 30 are, are quite astounding. And that's before we see this generation that is being coached on how to get through a NAPLAN test. I mean, I'll never forget yeah. getting an email home saying, prepare your eight-year-old for NAPLAN. I'm like, what? <laughs> 
how do you prepare an eight-year-old for NAPLAN? Keep them calm at breakfast. I'm like, stop it. So there's that side of it. And then mm. when you look at something like Jeff Pfeffer's research, I don't know if you saw that no, in March. No. So the book he's written is actually, he took about four years to do it. It's a whole bunch of doctorate papers he put together. Right. But it's called Dying for a Paycheck. And he actually strips away the anxiety and stress of everything else except work and looks at the death rate of work. And it's higher than diabetes. So this is like is astounding levels okay. of research saying the way that we're working and leading and thinking about how we come together to contribute. Because that's really all work is, be yes. together to contribute to something worthwhile. Um, we've really got it wrong. Yeah. And we also know from the flip side of that, and I'm a patron for autism, is that having a job is so important to our fundamental sense of community is, that we yeah. belong. Yeah. And so if we've got that, we need to work because not just because we need the money, although we all do, but equally because it gives us a feeling of fulfillment, of belonging, of community. And so that's so important. So how can we get it so wrong to yeah. make people feel anxious about anxious. being included? Yeah, <laughs> and I think, I speak for me, it gives you a sense of purpose as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's not my sole purpose. Um, no, of my, my, I'm also father to two young children, etc. But there's absolutely a, a sense of purpose, a sense of identity for a lot yeah. of people as well. So, absolutely, if that is making you anxious, that's a fairly yeah. large part of your life. And it's it's even small things like my purpose might be some amazing piece of work I'm doing or you're doing. Mm. But actually, if you rang me up, even like this today, you said, "Hey, do you mind coming up and chat about this?" Yeah. I'm like, "I can help you if I know something that's useful to you. This is good." Yes. So that's a small purpose, but it's a good purpose yes. to be helpful. When we come to events like ARI, yeah. um, sometimes I, I feel, and it's just my observations, that um, we, we talk about working hours and we talk about rising anxiety, and we know fundamentally there are problems, but it seems like sometimes it's a bit of a reset, um, and then we go back to our daily <laughs> lives, and, and next Monday uh, you and I will be back at the coalface. Um, what changes um, are you seeing organisations put in place to actually start to counter this? Are we heading in the right direction, or is it still... I haven't seen an organisation that's got everything okay. perfect, yeah. but I've certainly seen some leaders who've got it a lot better than other leaders. Yeah. So whether they're in a big organisation or a small one, there's no science to that either. There's not like small companies make great cultures and big ones don't. Mm. Big companies can make great cultures, I just haven't seen one of them doing consistently. Okay. But I think what we are doing is we are understanding that well-being is part of work, that we're all going to work a lot longer, that there's a different way of coming at the physicality of work as well. So yeah. I think we're getting better at understanding, we're getting better conversations. Yeah. We have to lose the perfectionism. Right, okay. We have to lose that. Touch on that for me. What do you mean uh, by that? I, I, you know, someone, someone always asks me, and they asked me yesterday in the keynote, actually, I said, what's the one thing that we could do? I said, look around your team and your workmates, and if they all look and sound like you and you're all drowning in agreement, go out and find a new group of friends. Like, yeah. it, drowning in agreement is a way to make work easy, but it becomes very perfect because everyone's yeah. getting it right. Whereas working with someone who's got a different idea, a different challenge, a different question that you've never answered before is one of those things you go, whoa, I've only got one-tenth of the answer or one-tenth of even the questions. Mm. And now I'm looking... I mean, we work with a, a group of guys called Equal Reality who are virtual reality okay. experts, yep. and they're fantastic. But the thinking that they bring to us, and they do the same thing with us because we've all got psychology backgrounds and everything, and they're sort of going, whoa, we have never thought like that. And it feels remarkable to look at a 28-year-old techie yeah. telling you you're cool. You're like, <laughs> yay. It's that exciting. Twenty-eight year old to say anyone's cool over forty, I reckon is cool. It is cool. You mentioned leadership. So, uh, all right, not all companies have got it one hundred percent right, but you're noticing traits in leaders that are good. Um, I'd love you to sort of expand on that because a lot of people that are going to be listening to this yeah. are, are in leadership positions, and as HR, 
well, I think that we are leaders um, generally, but, yeah. but what are some of those traits that you notice in successful leaders when we're looking at, at, at um, um, you know, making work more inclusive and, and, and less anxious, I guess? Yeah, yeah, so really great leadership has always been people who really understood the relationships. And, and we spent so much time training people in how to hold their hands when they're speaking on stage and mm. how to stand and what colour suit to wear. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, now we're sort of going, it is about relationships. So are you a good leader? You sort of know because you can look at the people who work closest with you and also even the next level away from you and say, do I have good relationships with them? Mm. Do I know their experience every day? Am I hearing what's going on in their world? Do I know them as people? And if you've got really good relationships around you, that's a really awesome foundation for great leadership. Yeah. I've got a 21-year-old in my team who's a graphic artist. She's fantastic. Mm. Totally comes at the world in a different way, trying desperately to help me understand memes. I love to laugh. I really enjoy it. I don't get memes. I really want to. I was about to ask you, any particular, <laughs> any particular favourite ones? <laughs> no. No. I'm with you. I don't get them either. I get them. Yeah. But, but she's, she's hanging in there. Yes. And so she, every, yeah. she sends me about a meme a day. Yeah. And, and she goes, did you get this one? And, and probably at the moment I'm running it about one out of five. And that's not bad because yes. if you go back a year, I was struggling to do that. So. When it comes to actually work and collaboration, what, what does that do for you guys? Um, how, is, how, is, how does that improve that level of relationship that you have and understanding? I, I would say that the greatest part of my job, the piece I love the most, is the collaboration. And yeah. it, it doesn't matter whether you're sitting with a frontline police person and an assistant commissioner and talking about what that looks like in a remote area, mm. policing and, mm. and doing flexibility remotely, or whether you're sitting with equal reality and, in the case of the Domain Group, which we've just done a big piece of work on diversity inclusion, and rethinking what diversity and inclusion is okay. and saying it's not about the policies and the processes and the escalations and everything else. It's actually about how does it feel to belong? Yes. And, and once I know how it feels to belong and how it feels not to belong, then I want to help you belong too. And if you want to do that for me, then we can probably work really well together okay. because you're open to each other and you're trying to create not just your own belonging and ask for what you need, but equally create it around you so that other people can fit into your world. Sure. So I think there's a bit of fear around the future of work. Uh, and, and, and I've probably been to enough seminars where, uh, where a futurist has been rolled out uh, and, uh, and, and they're very good. Yeah. Um, however, I've probably left uh, and straight away jumped on not to get a plug for, for my company, Seek, but I've, I've kind of had a look on there and thought, oh, how long is my job going to exist for? Yeah. But, but tell us about, I'd love to hear your impressions of the future of work and um, because you are optimistic. You're an optimist and that's why your keynote yesterday struck <laughs> such a good chord. And it's good to open Ari with an optimistic uh, uh, presentation. But what do you see the future of work? Well, I think it's um, this, this opportunity to really be much more equal than we ever have been. So I think we can expect a lot of each other and, and not to a perfectionist weird state, but in a... Belonging is a really great example. If, if we can uh, use virtual reality, which is the example mm. that we talked about yesterday, we can actually use virtual reality to show someone how it feels to be intimidated. Okay. Now, I can tell you the story of being intimidated. You can tell me the story. Mm. If we're good listeners, we might hear that story. But actually to strap on virtual reality goggles and have a feeling of being excluded. Yes. And then to take that straight away into a really good conversation because people have a visceral reaction and so you know every time I see things like uh, an ad on TV say stand up to bullies I'm like you've obviously never met a bully never, yes. if you stand up to a bully you will be smashed yes you will that, <laughs> it's a bad advice that, that's why they're a bully <laughs> that's yeah. why they're a bully <laughs> yeah. so 
you're better actually showing someone how it feels to be the feeling of being bullied. Now, I, I spoke to someone, for example, I was saying to your style is so intimidating that people yes. don't hear what you're saying because you're so physically imposing. Yes. Oh, no one's ever given me this feedback. I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's a circle, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and they just yes. want to get away from you, basically. That, that would be so, the point. Yeah. That would be the point. But if you can make someone in virtual reality feel the feeling of someone standing over them that they can't get away that they that, and then you ask them afterwards you say what did they say and people go I have no I idea yeah. I have no idea what they said I could just feel them and the same as being excluded um, when we're in a meeting and we know someone's not giving us space in the meeting yes. we can feel that yes. and if we can put that in virtual reality and we can also then take it across to the positive side if you're going to learn to coach, some people are great coaches and some people are terrible. Mm -hmm. We can actually practice coaching in virtual reality and choose ways of responding without using a real test dummy of a human being. Yeah. You know, those coaching conversations that you get wrong can be very damaging. If you can practice until you're more confident, you're better at it. Yes. Sometimes you do that with a buddy, but you can also do it virtually a little bit too if you're not very good. Yes. And practice. So practice is actually... If you're not great with people, practice. Yes. You can get better. That's a fascinating example just to touch back, but using virtual reality to, to I guess, make people experience exclusion. Yeah. Um, and I take it some of the people that you would have worked with this for um, have been a long time in the workforce and have never experienced that. So to them, it, this is really is a foreign concept, something that's written down. I'd um, love to hear some of the reactions that they've had. Is this something that they get at the first go or, or, or is it a continual process or is it, is it, has it been a light bulb I guess I'm asking it, it's, it's such a great question because um, it, you, you, you've got intellectually you sort of say this could work and then when you see it work it's just extraordinary so um, a virtual reality experience that actually triggers empathy and people talk about neuroscience but that's what we talked about a bit yesterday too um, and we'll, we'll get on to neuroscience I hope but, yes. <laughs> but um, when we uh, talk about empathy, we can actually trigger empathy by a feeling of being excluded. Mm. So one of the um, scenarios that we do is we actually have, you're standing there with two of your colleagues, your boss walks up, you're leading the project and they say, how's it going? Mm. And your two colleagues answer for you. Yes. And so you go, well, but, but I... <laughs> I wanted to say something. Yes. And so they just say, no, 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 we're just doing it, the three of us. So they just discounted, diminished your role completely. Yes. And then what happens is the boss walks away, they start talking about what they're going to do on the weekend. So you're now not included at all. And what you have a choice in this scenario, and it only takes one minute, where you actually can say, you can ask to be included. Like, hey, could you take a third person for the golf game? And their reaction when you ask to be included is to exclude you. Yes. There's nothing that can prepare you for being excluded. So people have a visceral reaction. But what's yeah. fascinating about it when you go into the conversation with a bigger group after the experience, we always do that experience in the first hour before the workshop, is when they walk into that workshop, people who've never felt that are filled with the experience. Oh, my goodness, I was so outraged, so angry. Yeah. <laughs> and then some person right next to them will say, Hasn't that ever happened to you before? Yeah. It happens every day. Yes. <laughs> and they've suddenly got this pattern interrupt because the person who's never had it before will be scoring their company, you know, nine out of ten on inclusion. It's going brilliantly because mm. it is for them. But they still might be sitting next to someone who was scoring at a three and they're saying, no, my lived experience is fundamentally different. I'm, I'm treated like that most days. Very much going back to the in-group and the out-group, that kind of phenomena, which we've we sort of spoken a little bit about unconscious bias and yes. how that can sort of be a derivative yes. of that as well. Okay. And then talking to the power of if you're in the in-group, mm. you actually have the power to change that. 
Right. You have the power to broaden it, to include, to be more aware. Yes. And once you feel it, you go, that's a bad feeling. I wouldn't want that if you're a decent human being. Of yes. course, if you're not a decent human being. Yes. Yeah. You'll be fairly impervious to it, I would have thought, but there's only so much technology can play a part in that. Rhonda Brighton-Hall is the founder and CEO of MOI. That is, making work absolutely human. And is one of Australia's leading experts in leadership, diversity and the future of work. She joined me at the 2018 ARA Convention in Melbourne. One of your other dinner guests last night was a neuroscientist and, yes. and you've, you've opened up a leading question for me. Tell me about, <laughs> what, why are you excited about neuroscience? Hey, it, it's the, because of my work with autism. Now, mm. autism is a massive um, neuroscience puzzle. But what's interesting about neuroscience when you really get into the depth of it, we're trying to use it so strangely. We're right. trying to use it in a really weird way at the moment. So we're trying to work out brains. And the number of times we go along to a conference and a person has a rubber brain and they pull it in half to show how brains work. <laughs> and I'm like, brains don't work like that. Yeah. Like, that's a disaster. So actually, the way we have to think about it is there are 88 billion neurons in a human brain. And each of those has 10,000 links to other neurons. Right. 88 billion to the power of 10,000. That's what we're talking about. Yes. So you take a cognitive psychologist in Belgium at the moment, who's one of the leading um, cognitive psychologists in the world. His topic of conversation, that's all he's been working on for 25 years, is what is consciousness? And he hasn't come up with an answer yet. Really? So when we talk about what is empathy, we've got three incredibly deep schools of thought with deep scientific knowledge behind them. One of them is saying empathy is part of the reptilian part of the brain. It's a reaction. Mm -hmm. Another group is saying, no, 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 no. It's a belief. It's in the religious part of where we sign up for spirituality. Okay. But there's a third school of thought coming through, which I think is really fascinating. And it's about the fact that it's not anywhere in the brain. We're not looking at the brain correctly. What it is is actually how the brain works together. Now, when we're up at that stage and you speak to a leading paediatric neurologist, they will tell you we currently understand 10% of the brain. What I say to neuroscientists is I'm reading everything, I watch everything you put out, but I'm interested in the other 90% because that's where the potential is. Sure. So rather than try and go deep dive into the neuroscience of an individual, I'd much rather talk about the collective behaviour when we get together. And that's what work is, it's how we work together. Okay. When you talk about those examples of where they sit, is, is it a belief or, or, or yeah. where, where do you personally sit? And actually, has your opinion changed over your journey as well? Did you start off thinking that was a belief and, and then... <laughs> I think I want it. I, I mean, empathy is my favourite topic, but it's um, yeah. and I think it's such an important part of how we work together and how we lead and everything else. Is um, I started off wanting to find the answer, like everybody else. I want it to be in A or B part of the brain. Mm. Now I'm okay with people continuing to spend their lives trying to work it out because the way that that Belgian cognitive psychologist described it, he said it's like looking into a black hole with a tiny torch. Right. So you don't even know what experiments to do to try and find it you just got to guess and hope you get one of them right. And the big leaps of neuroscience change in thinking has actually been lucky. And so what we try to do with something like virtual reality is it doesn't matter where it is in the brain. Let's try and trigger an emotional response. How long ago did you form Moi? How long was that? Uh, we, we spent all of 2016 building it. Yes. Uh, we launched in February 17, and we're just about to launch our new website in a couple of weeks. But wow. it's, uh, it's been a labour of great love. Yes. And we're surrounded by people who love it just as much. So, I, yeah, I, I, great I, fun. I can tell in your eyes it's a labour <laughs> of love. Fun. Yeah. What is the next... That's probably a bit of tiredness too, but yeah. Okay. yeah right. <laughs> That's your dinner last night, yeah. <laughs> what does the next 12, 18 months for, for, for you and the company hold in store? 
What, what do you think you're going to be working on and thinking about and what problems do you, do you reckon you'll be solving? Uh, this, the, I don't know the answer mm. to that, but but if you're open and you keep expanding the people that are sitting with you in the collaboration, yeah. most of our best work is done in, in not partnerships, in trio ships, whatever the word for that is. Right. So we actually work with a, a really thoughtful tech company, right. ourselves thinking differently about work and leadership and people. And then the third one is someone who's the commercial interest. It could right. be a little company, it could be a big one, um, and they come at it from a different angle too. And between those three parts of a triangle, you can really start to challenge everything. Yeah, great. <laughs> everything. Everything. <laughs> we'll, we'll just end it on that. The next 12 to 18 months, we could be working on everything. <laughs> we could. Well, I think uh, we've got a bit of a, uh, a bee in our bonnet. Uh, yeah, great. For, use an old expression at the moment, working through blockchain. Yes. There's a, I fundamentally believe the next big shift will be when individuals can own their own human capital. Okay. We set more up with half the business for companies and half the business for individuals. Yeah. And the individual's ability to own their own human capital, there's two sides to that. One is the technology to do that, and we're pretty close to that now. Right. The second part of it is supporting them in a way so that they are capable and confident to do that. Because if we say, here's human capital, good luck with it, yeah. and you're like, you'll be like the gig economy. Yes. Now, we don't have a very big gig no. economy here in Australia. No. It's, it's talked about a lot, but it's small. But actually... Uh, to run that sort of lifestyle, you need to be fairly confident with um, legal, financial, psychology, how you want to work. Um, mm. Yeah, you need to be fairly confident. Otherwise, it could be hugely anxiety-provoking and also for vulnerable workers would be a disaster. So how do we give people the confidence and capability to own their own human capital? Because fundamentally, yeah. I think they'll look after it better than if someone is like acting like their paternal Where did your passion for, for um, assisting people with autism come from, Rhonda? Uh, I, yeah, it's funny. I, I um, started working with autistic people when I was 16 at school. They okay. asked for volunteers, yeah. and I kept doing it right the way through uni, and I set up ergonomics in workshops and things like that as work was done then. And I kept that passion. And then, ironically, uh, when my son was born in uh, um, 2009, um, sorry, in 2000, sorry, I'm a bit emotional about this, okay. um, he was uh, reasonably quickly diagnosed as profoundly autistic. Right. And we lost Hugo in 2009. He was nine years old. And so that understanding, I had this helpful understanding and passion for people with disability and how mm. that's, that is the frontier, I think, of a great society includes people who aren't naturally included. Yes, so yeah. you have to work harder at that, and I think it's important. Um, and the second part, I think it makes society kinder. There's a whole bunch of yes. philosophical y ideas. Yes. Then to have a son who's profoundly autistic, you understand what that looks like as a parent. Um, special needs children of all shapes and sizes um, yes. change a family dynamic quite fundamentally. Yeah. Uh, in our case, it's made, I think my daughters are incredibly empathetic and kind, and I think that's part of it. I think Hugo had a massive impact yeah. on them. But to lose him in 2009 meant we had this 24-7 parenting responsibility of a special needs child disappear. Um, heartbroken, of course, mm. as you can well imagine as a parent. Um, but at the same time, we suddenly had the capacity in our lives to reach out a different way. And so we um, have elected not to be on boards and things. I could think of nothing worse than flipping through paperwork. But um, actually to think about how can we think differently about who can come to work, mm. how we can include them. And so anyone who's doing that work, we want to help. So we... we reach out all the time to people oh that's a different way we could do we could do something with yeah. that and then you that triumph triumphant is called a triumphant or trio ship or whatever it, the, I think so isn't yeah, it yeah, yeah. Trio. what would you like it to call we'll it we call it a trio don't we <laughs> traditional language yeah yeah so if you get a commercial 
person or a leader with a heart, and there's a lot of them, then you can really create something very special. Mm. And, and I think to get that systemic so that it's not one of, two of, it's actually, of course, we yes. would have people who are all differences in our workplace. Because if you have all differences in your workplace, you're actually much kinder to each other. Yeah. And it was more normal. Like, that's what we live in every day. Yes. And then we go to work and it's not like that. It feels yeah. weird, so we could change that. That was Rhonda Brightonhall, founder and CEO of MOI. To hear more Talent Talks, head to insightsresources.seek.com.au. I'm Hamish Coots.